The reading this morning is from Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd came from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It is great to be with you guys this morning. Thank you again for for allowing me to come and worship with you. Uh, As I mentioned, my family and I just recently moved to Scotland. And I think one of the universal challenges of moving that we've probably all experienced, whether we've been the ones to move or whether we've had loved ones move away from us, is that it is hard to leave people. Uh, There's a loss or at least a change that comes in the status or the dynamics of relationships when a move happens. It's hard to leave people. It's hard to get to know new people. It's hard to break into community. Um, And there's genuine grief that comes with that because you and I were created to have friendships and relationships. We are relational people. It's part of what it means to be made in God's image, that God is three within the Godhead. He's three in one, and so there's fellowship and communion that he has there, and he has made us to have friendship. But one of the amazing things that the Bible tells us is that he's not just created us for friendships with each other, which he has, but God's also created us. He has made us to have a relationship, friendship even, with himself. The psalmist in Psalm 25 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, those who worship God, and he makes known the unique dynamics of his relationship, his covenant. In Exodus, when God talks about his relationship with Moses, he says that it was, uh, it was like they were talking face-to-face as friends do. Now, that seems counterintuitive, I think, to how we approach God, to how we think about the way that he might relate to us. I think usually we, when we think about how do we relate to God, we, we slip into one of two patterns. Either we say, you know what, I, I think that I'm far too messed up, I'm far too uh, much of a broken mess for God to want anything to do with me. He couldn't love me. My problems are too big. If he really knew the way that I was, he would walk away. If I was really perfectly exposed to him, he'd say, not you. Or we slip into uh, a dynamic of uh, how we relate to God of saying, you know, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I work really hard at this. I, I certainly work a lot harder than that person over there. Uh, I do the best that I can. I, I learn as much about him. So I think that he's going to be really pleased with me. But neither one of those 
is friendship. Neither one of those is a genuine relationship. The first is fear and avoidance. It's isolation. It's actually the opposite of entering into fellowship and friendship. But the second one is just as bad. It's kind of a mercenary relationship of saying, if I do this, then he owes me this. And that's not relationship either. But what we need to know and what I want us to see from this passage and what I think we do see is that at the center of our faith is not just knowledge about God, but a personal God who came and became like one of us, and walked around this earth with us, a relational God about whom we don't just study, but with whom we have fellowship and relationship. So what was he like? If that's what we're created for, the good, a good question to ask is, if I'm created to have a relationship with him, what's he like? What was he like? How did he handle himself? How did he handle relationships with people? And in what we read, I, I really love this passage because what we read, we get a glimpse into the character and the heart of Jesus in a very chaotic moment. And I think it's important to see people in the middle of chaos and disruption because the real person, the real uh, underpinnings of what's going on in their heart come out in those moments. I know that's true for me because I am the parent, as I mentioned, of a six-year-old and a four-year-old. So the underlying uh, kind of uh, dynamic of my life is chaos right now. My house is chaotic. My kids weren't one of the ones who were running around, but it was chaotic in here when the kids were in here, and that's great. I love that. As a parent, if that was one of your kids, you might have been you know, cringing a little bit. But it's easy for me in those moments of chaos uh, to default to being short and uh, angry. It's easy for me to be calm and charitable when everything's going my way. But as soon as things flip on their head and things become disrupted, I become a much uglier version of myself. But what about Jesus? What was he like in the middle of chaos? See, what we see in this passage is a little glimpse into what we often recognize that the, the ministry and life of Jesus was extremely chaotic. For three years of Jesus' public ministry, he was constantly moving around, staying in one town or one home from another. He was constantly teaching. He was being mobbed by diseased people. He was being questioned and cross-examined by his friends and the people who were out to get him. He was entering crowds at times. He was running away from crowds at other times. He was training disciples, his friends, who most of the time just didn't get it, and they struggled. And in this interaction with the widow's son in Nain, we see another chaotic scene. See, Luke points out in our passage that there are two crowds at play here. Uh, Jesus, in verse 11, we see, is coming to this village with a great crowd. And that's a particular Greek word which meant that there was usually a, a few thousand people. We could say three to 4,000 people with Jesus. It's a significant amount of people who are traveling with him. And then we see Luke says that coming out of the gates of Nain in verse 12 was a considerable crowd. That's another particular Greek word, which meant that there were a few hundred people, which would have been about the population of the whole village. So these two crowds are coming from opposite directions, and they're meeting in the middle. We know that this scene, or we can, we can uh, pretty accurately guess that this scene would have been near sundown. Because that was the typical time that Jewish funerals at that time would have happened. 
So Jesus has been walking all day. He was coming from Capernaum, which is about 15 miles north, walking all day down to Nain. He's tired. He's ready for a rest. He's probably had a lot of conversations with some of the thousands of people that he's been walking with. And after all, he was truly, we believe, and we're told, a man. So he's tired. But as he gets to the place of his uh, hopeful rest, out comes the whole village to meet him, this funeral procession. Now, I have not been to a Scottish funeral, but I imagine it's similar to most Western funerals. Uh, At least in the United States, funerals are a typically solemn and kind of somber affair, appropriately so. funerals that I've been to, even if, even if it's a, uh, a funeral of a believer and we have hope and joy and we believe that, there's still a respect and a grief for the people who are grieving, the family members of the ones who are left. So you, you speak in hushed tones, there's kind of a quiet empathy. If nothing else, it's a composed scene. But this is almost the exact opposite of what a first century Jewish funeral would have been like. They were loud, noisy, rambunctious affairs. Loud and emotional, the whole town was expected to attend this funeral. That was uh, the respectful thing to do. It would have been musicians playing loudly. Professional mourners would have led the way, coming out and wailing and kind of proclaiming death, uh, going uh, out from the village. Other people would have been talking and having a conversation. You know, it would have been a chance for the whole village to get together. And so you have two crowds coming together. There's considerable noise and commotion. And then it's in the middle of this chaos that Luke tells us Jesus looks and sees the woman who is completely broken. Verse 13, he looks at her. He sees her. He says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. Now I wonder if we believe that that's the way that God deals with us in our brokenness, in our chaos, and in our despair. See, how often do you and I question the character of God when things start to go against us? say things like, doesn't he see? Doesn't he know? Things are spinning out of control. Where is God? That's a common human experience. There's even some aspects of that that are good. The psalmists often do that. They say, God, don't you see what's happening in my life? Are you present? Are you here with me? Maybe you felt that way this past week. Doesn't God care? But this is why we need to remind ourselves who God is like what he's like, who he is, and the person of Jesus, how did he handle himself? Paul Miller, uh, who is a a writer and theologian and looking at this passage, said that what we see here and the way that Jesus responds to this woman is a defining pattern of Jesus' life and ministry, that he sees, he has compassion, and he acts. If you look through the Gospels, you begin to see this over and over. He sees, he has compassion, and he acts. Compassion is the number one emotion that the Gospel writers talk about related to Jesus and how he handled himself. But this isn't just contained to Jesus in the Gospels. This is the pattern of how God acts and responds all throughout Scripture. 
The psalmist, again, Psalm 40, talks about how God sees us. It says that he thinks about us. We're on his mind. And as you read the Gospels, you see this played out over and over again. As Jesus comes into contact with hurting people, even in the middle of chaos, he sees and stops and considers them. He has compassion and he enters in. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about why that is so important why it should be so important for us. See, our created design, the way that God made us, as we mentioned, is for relationship and fellowship, but not just relationship, but perfect, shameless relationship and fellowship with God. If you think back to Eden, the way that Adam and Eve were both created is that they were naked and unashamed. Not just physical nakedness, but the entirety of who they were was exposed without shame. This is what we were made for. Tim Keller talked about this a lot in his ministry. He, he said that we were designed to be both fully known, that is exposed, and in that exposure, as scary that, as that is, fully known and fully loved. That's what we were made for, to know and experience that. But of course, sin has come in and has shattered that created order. It has brought chaos. It's brought chaos around us, and it's brought chaos within us. We feel guilt and fear and anxiety and shame. And even worse, our sin, the Bible says, it condemns us. It speaks against us. So we know, even if we might try to to ignore this, we know in our inner being that what goes on in our hearts is ugly. And our fear is that if people really knew what my heart was like, that they wouldn't want to be around me. So Keller again says, our greatest fear is not just that we'll be exposed, but that in that exposure, we're going to be rejected. But what does Jesus do? How does he see people? He sees, nothing is hidden from him, but even more remarkably, in seeing, he's not moved to exasperation or frustration, but his heart is moved to compassion. Now that word means to be moved towards someone. It's a relational word. It's an attractive word. It means that his heart travels out towards this woman as he sees and considers her situation. This is what the heart of God is like. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. The Lord longs, he waits to show his grace to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. I wonder if you really believe that. If you live in light of that reality of what God says that he is like, not just what you fear God might be like. As I said earlier, people, most people, I think, are operating one of two ways. Either he, he doesn't or he couldn't want anything to do with my mess. He's waiting to find me out. Or, you know, I'm doing well. I don't need his compassion. I don't need his mercy. But the gospel of Jesus Christ wants to get at and break down the foundation of both of those lies. Jack Miller uh, was a pastor and professor in the States. He started the organization that I work for. He, has, he had a very common phrase to sum up the gospel that uh, we say a lot. He said, cheer up. 
cheer up. You are way worse off than you thought you were. (laughs) Cheer up. But you're far more loved than you ever hoped to imagine. You're worse than you think. But there's hope. There's one who has the power to help you and me in our brokenness, in our chaos, who offers to make us whole again. And this is what Jesus does for this woman. So let's look at that. We see uh, that Jesus sees the widow. He has compassion towards her. But then he does something fairly odd. And I don't know if you thought it was odd when it was first read because sometimes the Gospels can become very familiar to us. But look at verse 13. He says, he sees her, he has compassion, and he says to her, do not weep. Now, I think this is one of those do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do moments of Jesus' ministry. I would not suggest that the next funeral that you attend, that you go up to the weeping and grieving family and say, don't cry. What are you crying about? But Jesus does. Isn't that strange? Why can he do that and we shouldn't? We know instinctively that we shouldn't do that at the next funeral that we intend to. But why does Jesus do that? Well, the the reason that Jesus can do that and we shouldn't is that he knows that he has the power and the authority to restore the brokenness and the futility of this woman's life. Think about this. I have a, a very sweet uh, but emotional son. And uh, if he comes up to me this afternoon and his favorite toy is irreparably broken, it would be fairly unfeeling for me as a parent to say, Everett, why are you crying? Get over it. It's just a toy. But if he thinks that his toy is broken, but it's actually not that bad, and I can fix it, and he comes up and he's crying, I can say, hey, buddy, it's okay. I can fix this. Don't worry. Don't cry. There is nothing to cry about because I have the power to solve this problem. This widow's situation is certainly something to be upset about. We would all recognize that. We need to try to understand how desperate this woman's situation is. We're told in verse 12 that she's a widow, so she's obviously lost her husband, but now she's burying her only son, which means that there's not just death behind her that she's been dealing with, and she's in the middle of grief, but her future is ruined as well. Because to be a woman with no male heir or husband in that culture meant that you had no prospect of providing for yourself. She couldn't just go out and apply for some jobs. Again, Paul Miller, in looking at this, says that she has basically entered into a kind of living death. It's not just her son who's died, but she has died in a way. Any future hopes that she had about her life or what she wanted to see have died as well with her husband and now her son. But Jesus comes with the power to bring life and restoration back to her. So he says, don't cry. I can help you. And the way that Jesus does this is really remarkable. The way that he helps her is by reaching in and touching and dealing with death itself on her behalf. Look at how Jesus stops the funeral procession in verse 14. We see that he came up 
and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. Now, a bier was just kind of an open casket, uh, kind of a wicker pallet that the, the person who had died would be being carried on, but Jesus touches the bier, and the reason why the whole crowd stops is because they're all astonished that Jesus would do this, because for a Jew to touch anything associated with death was to become ritually and spiritually unclean. It was specifically prohibited for priests and Levites, the teachers of the law, to do this. They were not allowed to handle or touch anything connected with death because of their role as spiritual leaders. Death is a natural result of sin. Interacting with death makes you defiled, so maybe uh, it made you unable to be in the presence of God's holiness. But here is God himself in the flesh, reaching out and touching and dealing with death. And this is the wonder of the gospel, that Jesus isn't just dealing with this woman's loss, with this death, but that he reaches in and deals with death for all of us who would believe. That he didn't just deal with death for the widow of Nain, but for you and for me. Ephesians 2 talks about how we're not just kind of messed up, but how we are dead in our trespasses and sins absolutely dead, in our own kind of living death, even as we walk around outside of the grace and regenerative work of the Spirit, we are dead in trespasses and sins. A spiritual deadness that we cannot free ourselves from. We can't fix the problem. Why? Because we're dead. But at the cross, Jesus did something amazing. He didn't just reach out and touch death, but he entered into death. He didn't just touch a defiled thing, but he became the the defiled thing for you and for me. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that he became sin who knew no sin. Why? So that you and I could be clean, that we would be the righteousness of God, that we would be made whole and restored once again. See, the mission of Jesus is to take death and guilt and shame from us, to take it all on himself, and to give us life where once we only had death. This is what he did for this woman. He raised her son up, and then he gives him back to her. He gives her back, not just her son, but her life as well. And he does the same for us, by offering himself on our behalf. And this is what he offers the whole world. So, Briefly, as we end uh, looking at this passage, what should our response be to this? Whether this is the first time that we're hearing this, or whether it's the thousandth time that we're hearing this, how does the text tell us that we should respond? Well, let's read verses 16 and 17 again. Uh, Read this with me. So the crowd sees this. The, The son is raised, and he's given back to his mother, and fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amazement, awe, worship, giving glory to God, and sharing the news. What a great summary in two verses of our call as people who have been transformed by the grace and the mercy of God. 
worship, giving glory to God, and sharing the news. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. Whether you're in ministry or not, whether you're a missionary or not, that's all of our call. Leslie Newbegin, you might be aware of, of him. He was a 20th century missionary and writer. He served in India for 30 years. But when he came back to England in the 1970s, he looked around at the state of the church, and he was really distraught by the stale uh, kind of worship and the stale dynamics of the church uh, in the United Kingdom. So he began to write and speak about this problem in his later life, trying to explain uh, that the nature of the church or Christendom might shift and might look different. It ebbs and flows at times, but the gospel of Jesus Christ never changes. And so our responsibility never changes. The responsibility, he wrote, of the Christian mission, of the Christian in mission, is not merely to bring good values or a reaffirmation of what was once lost. We're not trying to regain some Christian uh, society, as it were. But our responsibility is to proclaim truth and to bring truth to bear in the public spheres that we live in. Gospel is not changeable. It doesn't shift. Why? Because it's news. What has happened has happened, and it is our news to share. The gospel is that God has done for you what you and I could never do for ourselves. Gospel is an honest recognition of who we are. Cheer up. You're way worse than you think you are but you're far more loved than you could hope. And the gospel is coming back to that over and over, reminding ourselves of that, of being transformed by the love and the grace and the mercy of God on a regular basis that allows us to then freely love without fear because we know that we are deeply known, fully known, and fully loved. Would you pray with me? God, it it is um, difficult at times to believe that you love us this way, that you see us this way, that your heart is moved to compassion, that for us as your children, uh, as we sang earlier, we are precious and beloved. Do we believe that as we sing it, as we hear it, as we remember? Help us to do that, to, to, to find peace in the love that you have shown us and displayed for us and the friendship that you have uh, given to us. Lord, I pray that, that uh, whether this is the first time or the thousandth time that we're hearing this, that we would believe that you don't just love us this way, but you have the power to change and transform our lives and our hearts. Uh, so help us to live in light of that gospel truth um, and to, to grow in our love Uh, for you, to want to be with you, our God, our Savior, and our friend. Amen.